Florida Matters is supported by WUSF members just like you. Your donation of $5 or $25 will help ensure public radio thrives. And thanks to Candy Olson, an additional $50 will be added to your donation. Visit WUSF.org match to maximize your gift today. This is Florida Matters. I'm Robin Sessingham. July 20th marks the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing, one of the most significant achievements in United States history. To mark the event, PBS stations will be airing a six-hour documentary, Chasing the Moon, which chronicles America's space race, leading up to the first lunar landing and beyond. Filmmaker Robert Stone wrote, directed, and produced Chasing the Moon, and he's joining us from his home in the Hudson Valley of New York. Robert, thanks for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. Robert, the press release for Chasing the Moon says that it reimagines the race to the moon, upending, this is a quote, upending much of the conventional mythology surrounding the effort. Could you explain what you mean by that? Well, I think the uh, the conventional mythology about Apollo and the race to the moon is uh, Kennedy got up there in 1961 and said that America is going to put a man on the moon by the end of the decade. Congress appropriated the money. NASA went to work on this technological effort, building this rocket and the spacecraft, and the astronauts trained and off they went to the moon. Um, the truth of the matter is far more complex than you could possibly imagine. Uh, First of all, Kennedy was uh, a reluctant space warrior, I guess. Uh, Space was not something he was particularly interested in, per se. Within six weeks of saying that we were going to go to the moon by the end of the decade, he goes to Vienna and meets with uh, his counterpart, Soviet Premier Khrushchev, and uh, is so freaked out at the cost of this program that he's just proposed that he offers to do a, a joint mission to the moon with the Soviet Union. Uh, He's rebuffed in 1961, revisits this again in 1963. Shortly before his uh, assassination, Khrushchev agrees to do a joint mission to the moon. And all the way along, he was questioning and had doubts about the whole thing. And the the mission itself, uh, so many times along the way, could have been derailed. Uh, It was falling behind schedule, the public was losing interest, congressional support was waning, technical problems were arising that prevented... uh, this effort from ever succeeding. And it was just a long, complicated story. Uh, One of the characters in my film, George Alexander, who was a a writer for Newsweek covering the space program, says, uh, you know, this was not a yellow brick road from Cape Canaveral to the moon. And um, that's very, very much the case. So we detail the whole effort, which uh, the, the complexity of actually pulling it off politically and and in terms of public support was as complex as the technical effort of, of building a rocket and making it technologically successful. And you went back into the archives and did an enormous amount of research. You spent five years researching the project, I understand. And you even have tape of President Kennedy saying, um, <laughs> you know, I'm not that interested in space. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we do. That 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 tape emerged in the last decade or so. Yeah, it was released. Uh, you know, he's expressing his doubt and concern about the enormous cost. You know, Kennedy was a fiscal hawk. He wanted to have a balanced budget, and he saw that this was just blowing a hole in his budget. 
and he was desperately finding a way to fix that problem and, and suggests that he, you know, he's not interested in just exploring space for its own sake. He's interested in what the space race can do for American prestige uh, and for America's image around the world and then saw it really through the lens of the Cold War with the Soviet Union in trying to impress countries around the world who were at that time throwing off the shackles of colonialism and were deciding were they going to side with the uh, you know totalitarian Soviet system or liberal democracy. So this was a sort of a war of visual imagery, a propaganda war to show you know which which side, which system was leading the humanity into the future. And this, the race to the moon was a great symbol for that. And that's how Kennedy perceived it. So much was riding on it. And I think one thing that you brought up is that human nature, I think, is to look back on something like this as inevitable. You know, things like the American Revolution. We learn the history of the revolution. We learn the history of the moon race. And later, it just seems inevitable. But at the time that it happened, you know, as you said, it, it was touch and go. Yeah, well, one of the things we did in, in constructing the film, first of all, you know, we went into uh, nearly 100 different film archives to source material for this film. So it go, we went way beyond the NASA collection. There's no talking heads. There's no narration. It's uh, We did audio-only interviews with about 12 characters who guide us through this whole venture who were there. And we really use a lot of contemporaneous news accounts of what was going on. So you see and hear this... Uh, adventure unfolding almost in real time as it was happening. So um, we don't have this sort of seesaw back and forth between past and present. It's it's un- it's very immediate, and so you experience the the the, the pitfalls and the sidetracks and the the various directions that it could have gone or was seen to be going. Uh, at the time, which you might might be overlooked if you just looked back at it in this sort of retrospective way that most histories do, as you said, you know, where it just seems, okay, well, they landed on the moon, so you only focus on the points X, Y, Z that got you to the moon and, and sort of forget about all the other interesting things along the way that uh, didn't pan out. And it's the things that didn't pan out that are I find to be some of the most extraordinary things, like the prospect of a joint Russian-American mission to the moon, uh, the Kennedy administration also wanted to have an African-American astronaut on the moon and, and uh, recruited him into the space program. This amazing man, Ed Dwight, who we profile. Um, we also uh, spent a lot of time with the first and only woman to serve in Apollo mission control. And we detail an extraordinary story um, during Apollo 11 that's really never been told, which is uh, the story of this unmanned mission that the Russians launched at the same time as Apollo 11 and and went to the moon at the same time as the uh, Apollo 11 astronauts. Um, I don't want to give too much away about that, but it's uh, it's an incredibly riveting story that's been almost entirely forgotten, a kind of man versus machine last minute Hail Mary that the Russians pulled off. So you did quite a bit of research. I'm just wondering how your view of the space race and the moon landing and the whole project, how did your view of all of that changed during the five years that you were working on this? Well, I learned so many things that I didn't know. I mean, I had a, a pretty good understanding, I thought, of, of what happened. But our research revealed so many new things. And I think part of that came from really looking at the contemporaneous news accounts and, and watching this thing unfold as it was reported at the time that we... Um, 
we just came across a lot of stories that had just been completely forgotten that were really critical to how the space race was perceived at the time. And we ended up, we, we discovered so much new material that um, we ended up writing a companion book too, which goes into much further detail. I mean, and one of the most fascinating things is the career of Werner von Braun, who's the uh, the German rocket scientist who was a former uh, uh, colonel in Hitler's SS who came to the United States, teamed up with Walt Disney, sold the idea of, of human space travel to the American public, uh, launched America's first successful satellite, and sold President Kennedy on the idea of putting a man on the moon. He's one of the most fascinating characters of the 20th century, and he's sort of the through line to the series. So let's talk about him a little bit. He actually designed, he was a brilliant rocket scientist, he designed the rockets that were used in the Apollo program, and we sort of owe him for, for winning the space race, if you will, with the Soviets. And he had worked for the Germans during World War II, creating rockets against us. But we sort of, um, well, we needed him, and so we forgave him. Yes. Well, you know, uh, von Braun was a sort of aristocratic German nobleman, really, who was fascinated by space travel as a kid and started building rockets as a teenager. And uh, he was recruited um, by the German army to build ballistic missiles and met Hitler personally and, and sold Hitler on the idea that this was some sort of super weapon that would win the war when Hitler bought the whole thing hook, hook line and sinker. Of course, it was a complete failure as a weapon. And it was extremely expensive at lobbing one single bomb, you know, across the English Channel to London. But uh, it did pave the way for all future rockets and advance the whole field of rocketry uh, immeasurably. And after World War II, he and his entire band of, of rocket scientists, or most of them at least, the leading ones, all surrendered to the United States. They were brought here and put to work by the U.S. Army to eventually build um, the intercontinental ballistic missile. The Soviets got some lesser-ranked German scientists who built their rockets and their first ICBMs, and the race, the race for, for rocket development was on. But, you know, von Braun was much more than, um, than just a brilliant scientist. He was an incredible showman. He was incredibly charismatic. And he had that rare combination of ability to be a great salesman and was also a great... Uh, scientist and a, and a great manager of, of, of vast operations. So he had a rare combination. I don't think he was a, you know, an ideological Nazi, but, you know, he was an opportunist who would take money from whoever was in power so he could build his rockets. We'd be that Adolf Hitler or the U.S. Army or, you know, anybody. But his ultimate desire was to send people to the moon and Mars and go off to other planets. That was his dream. So you found a lot of unsung heroes in your research, but as far as the astronauts that we all know, who was your favorite astronaut? I mean, who captured your imagination the most? Well, we, the, the astronauts that we profile in the film are Buzz Aldrin, Mike Collins, uh, Frank Borman, and Bill Anders. Frank Borman and Bill Anders flew on Apollo 8, which was the first they were the first humans to leave the orbit of the Earth and go around the moon in Christmas 1968. And uh, Buzz Aldrin, of course, walked on the moon with, with Neil Armstrong. Mike Collins was on that mission in the command module. Um, I don't know. If, I can't say I have a favorite, but I can say it's just been a thrill of a lifetime to spend time with these men and to hear their stories and to get to know them 
you know, by doing audio only interviews with them, we were able to get things from them that has not been revealed in other documentaries. You know, these guys have told their stories so many times over the last 50 years, always with the glare of lights and cameras and things, but just getting them off on their own, just me and a microphone in their living room, you know, they completely forgot that, uh, this was a production. We were just having a conversation and they really opened up to me and it was, um, it was really quite remarkable and a lot of new stories came out and a lot of heartfelt stories and emotion that uh, they haven't revealed in other interviews. Give us a taste of one of those stories. Give us a little tidbit of something that we might hear on the show. Uh, well, Frank Borman, who is the commander of Apollo 8, he was the first guy, uh, well, let me back up. In, in January 1967, the first Apollo mission to test out the Apollo capsule and everything, Apollo 1, caught fire on the, the, the capsule caught fire on the launch pad during a test and three astronauts were killed. And one of the astronauts was Frank Borman's best friend, uh, Ed White. Frank led the investigation into what happened. He had to crawl inside the burned out capsule and sit where his friend Ed White had been and uh, make notes on where all the switches and dials and everything was. And he led the redesign of the entire capsule. And then he had to um, go to Congress and persuade Congress, who was busy investigating this, and many of whom were prepared to, to cancel the whole Apollo project at this point, and really saved the day and, and got, the, got the program back on track and um, said that uh, you know he was willing to fly in the first Saturn V, the new redesigned capsule to the moon. He personally was. And that, that commitment helped put the entire program back on track after a tragic, tragic fire that really almost derailed the entire program. Talk a little bit about Apollo 8. That mission that Frank Borman commanded, it said that it saved 1968, which was such a tumultuous time for the United States. Martin Luther King had been assassinated. Robert F. Kennedy had been assassinated. There were riots in the cities. The Vietnam War was raging. The country was in chaos, basically. And then you had this mission, uh, Apollo 8, which was not supposed to go to the moon, but I think in the beginning, but then they decided to take that big step. Yes, the, 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 the situation in the United States is as you described, and, and similar situations uh, were going on all over the world. The world was in turmoil um, and was deeply polarized and divided even more so than it is today and in many ways. And in the midst of this, we pulled off what is without question the riskiest and most daring space mission ever, which was to launch a rocket that had only been tested three times before. Um, it was the biggest rocket in the world, orders of magnitude bigger than anything anybody had launched before um, with humans, send them out of Earth orbit for the first time and around the moon and doing complex maneuvers on the backside of the moon when they weren't even able to communicate back to Earth because the moon was in the way. This was an incredibly daring mission, and they had no... They had no backup and redundancy. If anybody has seen um, the movie Apollo 13 will remember that what saved Apollo 13 was the fact that they had this lunar module that had redundant, you know, had rockets and, and it had air and water and that was sort of their life raft. Well, Apollo 8 went to the moon without, it was the only mission to go to the moon without a, a lunar module because it hadn't been finished yet. So it was an incredibly daring mission. It happened over Christmas 
And the two sort of main events of that mission, one was um, Bill Anders took this famous photograph of the Earth rising over the surface of the moon. So you see the Earth in the, in the background full of life and color and in uh, and, and, and the foreground, this sort of lifeless, desolate lunar landscape. And that, that image just captured the attention of the world when they came back and was on the cover of magazines all over the world and is credited with really launching the environmental movement, the modern environmental movement that we know today. It was really inspired by that one image, which gave us a new sense of, of you know, spaceship Earth, as we called it. And the other thing was the on Christmas Eve 1968, in the middle of this tumultuous moment as that you described, the uh, astronauts were told by NASA that they're going to have the largest audience that's ever listened to a human voice in their broadcast, their Christmas Eve broadcast. And um, they chose to read the first few lines of the book of Genesis as the world listened in below. And um, it was a very moving moment that uh, I think everybody sort of caught their breath for a second and said, hey, you know, these are emissaries of us, the humankind, off around the world. And people recognized their common humanity for, for a moment there. And um, all, the, all the divisions and the, the war and the, 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 the things that were dividing us kind of fell away for, for a brief moment. And um, we saw our common humanity. It was an unforgettable moment, uh, which happened once again during Apollo 11 the following year. And then those are the, those are the, the t- I think, the two most memorable moments of the space age. Yeah. Robert, were you watching as a little kid? Oh, absolutely. I was 10 years old. Uh, I remember the Christmas 68 broadcast. It was incredibly inspiring. And I, I remember, um, I remember too, the landing on the moon. Uh, and it's also, you know, important for, for my own memories of that time. A few months before Apollo 8 went to the moon, my parents had taken me to see Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey, which is the, the movie that made me want to be a filmmaker. And um, it was a film that really presented Werner von Braun's fantastic ideas of, of human space travel and uh, orbiting space stations and trips to Mars and the outer planets and moon bases. All of that was vividly brought to life by Stanley Kubrick. And, we, you know, we all thought that that was what the 21st century was going to look like. We all imagined that that's where we would be by now. So it was a, it was a credible moment. And then to see in such a, just a few months later, to see the first steps on the moon, um, just reinforced that idea that we were in a, a new world that was, um, you know, we'd all be going on vacation to lunar bases and things like that. Didn't quite turn out that way, but that's what we thought. So Apollo 11 took off on July 16th, 1969, and a lot of things went wrong. It wasn't quite such a smooth flight. Well, yes, everything went perfectly, but all along the way, there were little things that that could have led to to bigger problems but overall it was uh it was in many ways a flawless flight but we do we do look back at the apollo missions and i think because they all went so well um except for apollo 13 and even then we've never lost a man in space we brought them back alive and everybody was fine because they all went so well we forget how risky and dangerous these missions really were. Neil Armstrong famously, you know, landed on the moon with only 17 seconds of fuel left in the tanks because they, as they were landing, the, the landing site was, was not what they had expected. It was full of rocks and there was a 100-yard crater that they were about to land in and they had to burn up extra fuel finding a safe place to land. 
to get back up to and link it back up to the command module, they had this one rocket that had never really been tested on the moon before because they'd never landed on the moon. It had no backup. It had to work. And they had they had one chance to make it work. There was no redundancy to that. It was about just about the only thing that had absolutely no redundancy on their mission. And uh, people were so concerned about it. The New York Daily News, uh, as well as Newsweek, both had typeset headlines in preparation for that rocket not firing and the astronauts being stranded on the moon. Uh, the the New York Daily News headline that was set in type, ready to go, uh, said "marooned" in huge letters. And can you imagine, had, had that not worked, and we'd, uh, we'd never look at the moon the same way again. So it was incredibly risky, incredibly challenging, but because it all went so well, we, I think we have a certain hubris about the challenges we face in, in perhaps going back to the moon, let alone going on to Mars. And did you learn about the people in the flight room? I understand there were some engineers that were in their 20s there making these big decisions about whether to go or no go. On the, on the mission, um, problems that were happening with the computers, things like that? Yeah, well, they, had, they definitely had problems with their computers. I mean, one of the extraordinary technological developments that had to be made for Apollo is they had to, they had to miniaturize so much technology. I mean, it, uh, computers in those days were as big as a house, practically. Uh, and they had to miniaturize these computers to fit them in spacecraft. The television cameras were as big as a refrigerator, and that had to all be shrunk down. This sort of technological innovation is kind of what led to the technological revolution that we're living with today. Then, you know, I'm speaking to you right now on my iPhone, and it's an outgrowth of, of the technological innovation that was undertaken to send men to the moon. Uh, the computer aboard the Apollo spacecraft and the lunar module had the, the, the computing power of a electronic greeting card that you pick up at the supermarket. Um, it's just extraordinary, and that got us to the moon. And yes, uh, the, most of the, the people who worked for uh, the Apollo um, were, you know, in their 20s and 30s. It was, uh, these are people in the prime of their life doing the most exciting job of their lives, very dedicated, and uh, had to make life or death situations, not just for the astronauts, but uh, also, you know, the prestige of the United States was riding on the success of that mission. Uh, one of the people in mission control, not during the landing, but in the return, was uh, Poppy Northcutt, who we profile in the film. The, the first and only woman uh, to work in Apollo mission control uh, during the Apollo era. Yeah, when you see pictures or watch a video of mission control, it's just a sea of male faces, and she really does stand out. Yeah, she was the only one there. She got a lot of media attention at the time, and, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 the mission control uh, in Houston is kind of almost a caricature of the sort of macho, male environment. Um, and, uh, you know, her experience there, right during the time when the women's movement was becoming, um, really coming to the fore, radicalized her. And she became, uh, she was a founding member of the National Organization for Women in Texas, and becoming became a national board member of NOW um, out of that experience. And one thing I wanted to touch on, um, I've heard you mention Buzz Aldrin. He's walking on the moon, but the fact that the cameras are on him and all these people are watching him, that's the main thing he was thinking about. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we had this incredible interview with Buzz Aldrin. I, I interviewed him for about eight or 10 hours. Um, 
and got some remarkable stories out of him. And you know, one of the, one of which we have in the film is that you know during the entire time that he was walking on the moon, the number one he was the thing he was thinking about was this television camera that was pointing at him, and the entire world, <laughs> at least all of all of the world who had access to a television set, was was watching him. And that was his primary preoccupation, um, you know, worrying that he might trip and fall or do something embarrassing in front of uh, nearly a billion people. Don't fall down, Buzz. Well, I guess when we landed on the moon, I guess the thinking then was when all this happened, this is the beginning. This is who we are now. You know, we know the United States can pull something like this off and then everything is possible. But, but then what happened after that? Well, public, the public lost interest. I mean, it was one thing to land for the first time. It was, not, it was the first humans to land on the moon, the first life from Earth to leave the planet and land on an alien world. And it was uh, one of the very first uh, times the entire world had been linked together in a, in a single live television event. It was a unique thing that has, that has never before happened in human history uh, and has never happened since. Uh, so to do it again and again, um, the public sort of lost interest. The last three missions of Apollo, uh, Apollo's eight, 18, 19, and 20 were canceled. And uh, we've kind of been stuck in low Earth orbit ever since. Uh, the robots have done remarkable uh, uh, jobs at exploration, um, going places where humans really can't. And that's been incredibly inspiring. But uh, human exploration is now really in the hands of people like Elon Musk and uh, Jeff Bezos and people like that, I think, you know, in, in terms of human exploration beyond, uh, beyond Earth orbit. And uh, it's incredibly exciting what they're doing. Uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to it, but I don't think it's going to be a, a grand you know, national uh, priority by the federal government uh, again. Uh, that was a unique thing that happened uh, really as a consequence of the Cold War. Well, Robert, congratulations on finishing this project and having it air on PBS. And thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Chasing the Moon is airing on PBS stations July 8th through the 10th, July 15th through the 17th, and all six hours will air July 20th. Thank you for joining us. To reach us, you can email us at floridamatters at wusf.org, or you can tweet us at Florida Matters. And Florida Matters is available as a podcast. Search for it wherever you get your podcasts. Florida Matters is a production of WUSF Public Media. The engineer is Richard Jimenez. The show is produced by Stephanie Colombini. I'm Robin Sussingham. Thanks for listening.